Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Right now you can get 33% off of any purchase over at tweakedaudio.com. When you enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L, 33% off, enter the promo code other people over at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked audio. These are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, did it well. Struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Hey, everybody. Just How's it going? Right. I'm Brad Listy. Right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. My guest today is Brian McGreevy. He has a new novel out from Rare Bird Books. It's called The Lights. Brian is also a writer for television. He co-created and writes on the hit series, The Sun, adapted from the uh, Philip Meyer novel of the same name. Philip Meyer, a co-creator on that show. Lee Shipman, also a co-creator and a writer on that show. Lee was in this garage, if you will recall, for the Holiday Spectacular episode late last year. So Brian McGreevy coming up in just a moment. Before I get there, I do have a, a piece of mail that I would like to read. A listener named Derek writes, Dear Brad, I recently read your novel, Attention Deficit Disorder. In it, your protagonist falls under the spell of Tony Robbins. Did you go through a similar phase? I love that guy and return to him regularly. I would be eager to hear about his influence on you, i.e. anecdotes of Brad walking the streets of Los Angeles and shouting affirmations, etc. Love the show. Signed, Derek. Thanks for writing, Derek. Uh, your letter brings to mind the fact that I don't remember my own novel. <laughs> I have no recollection of this at all. The only thing I can remember off the top of my head is that there is a mini biography, I think, of Tony Robbins in the novel. But I don't recall the protagonist being under the influence of him. Or maybe he is. I can't remember. I've been fascinated with Tony Robbins and people like him uh, for all of my life. I feel like I've been fascinated with Tony Robbins since I was a kid and those infomercials would play late at night. And it's hard for me to understand how anyone could see those infomercials in the late 80s or whatever it was and not be fascinated 
by this person. Like, who is this guy? He's like six foot seven. He's tan. He's rich. He's walking on fire. He's excited about everything. He wants to help you. He's talking loud. He's talking fast. He's talking with his hands. He's trying to change your state. He's trying to rewire your neural circuitry. You know what I'm saying? Cure you of your phobia, whatever it is, you know, help you have a breakthrough. Everybody wants a breakthrough, right? Who doesn't want to have a breakthrough? So I'm, I, I do find myself fascinated by him and people like him. I'm fascinated by the peak performance market, the people who have professionalized that. Helping human beings achieve their potential. You know? So on the one hand, I think, uh, my God, what is going on with these people? seems like there's a, a very deep, maybe even bottomless hole that they're trying to fill, constantly trying to maximize every facet of their existence, personal relationships, finance, diet, job performance, fitness. You know what I'm saying? It gets exhausting to even think about it. But then at the same time, I'll be like, well, what, maybe I need to uh, get on this train. Maybe I'm sitting here on the sidelines criticizing in a state of lethargy and generalized ennui when I could be changing my state, rewiring my neural circuitry and having a much like richer experience of life. <laughs> Change my diet. Do some fire breathing, whatever it's called. Take an ice bath. So I'm fascinated, uh, but I'm not a disciple, you know? And I think that, I think Tony Robbins is, is benign, you know? Cause like when I was, I remember when I was researching my book, uh, many years ago, I thought that there was going to be a peak performance guru ish type character, even though I should, I should add that Tony Robbins is very emphatic about not wanting to be your guru to the point where there was a documentary made about him recently that is on Netflix called I am not your guru. But that doesn't mean that people, uh, you know, who follow him don't treat him as such or view him as such. So anyway, I was thinking that there was going to be a character like this who would have a more explicit role in my novel. And as research, I went to the landmark forum which I think is an outgrowth of uh, Est, that Werner Erhard 1970s personal growth movement, whatever. Uh, that was a complete shit show from my perspective and a total con. Like it was all about, you know, it, it was like wearing people out. You sit on a metal chair for like 14 hours a day. And this guy who ran the thing was uh, like overtly creepy. And then at the end of it, it's like, you know, call your parents, call your siblings, call your friends, sign them up. Let's get them, let's get them enrolled. It was one of those things. Whereas I think Tony Robbins, he really wants to help people, right? He also wants to like have a jet. <laughs> I 
And I think he would tell you that those, those two things are fine. Maybe they are. I don't know. It's confusing. That's why I'm fascinated by it. I don't know what to think. Maybe that's what they want. Am I like putty in Tony Robbins's hand? Is that what he wants? Am I the desired outcome? I'm talking about him. I'm doing his work for him. He has me. I've been hypnotized. Just ran into the microphone. <laughs> Just nodded off into the microphone. And what you're going to do is you're going to remember as long as you live that I don't fucking bullshit. <laughs> That's Tony Robbins right there. He cusses a lot in this documentary. I think that's a, a new thing. It breaks. It helps you break your state when he when he swears at you. It shakes you up out of your uh, you know your depression. You just fucking begun, and you're not gonna fuck it up. This is my new incantation. I'm gonna play this every morning when I wake up, on repeat. You just fucking begun, and you're not gonna fuck it up. I can't be stopped. I'm unstoppable. I would do these incantations. I would say over and over again, I'm fucking unstoppable, I'm fucking unstoppable, and I would just, I would say that for an hour while I'm going to run. Maybe I should go, uh, like, run a marathon. Do something big. I'm going to climb Everest. Go base jumping. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. i got to do something with my life. Make a mark. You just fucking begun and you're not going to fuck it up. Okay. All right. If you say so, I'm not going to fuck it up. I'm going to live my life as though I'm supercharged with electricity at all times. <laughs> See, this is like, this is, a, maybe this is a defense mechanism. This is me. This is a defense mechanism where I'm trying to gently mock the ambitions of people who fully embrace the experience of life because I'm scared. Uh, see what I'm saying? I can talk myself into anything. That's my problem. All my needs, desires, and goals are met instantaneously by infinite intelligence. I'm one with God, and God is everything. So, if you haven't seen this documentary, you should see it. These are clips from the trailer. It's called I Am Not Your Guru. It's worth watching. <laughs> I made my wife watch it with me. And it's an emotional film. It's like a, it's like a roller coaster in a way that most films are not. I got choked up a couple times. Other times I'm, I'm feeling skeptical and then I'm brought back in. It's, a, it's this up and down experience. It's a good movie though. And I think where I stand right now, I think overall, I, I've, I think I've always sort of felt like this, is that he, he's benign. I don't think he's a con artist. I think he believes this shit and I think he works really hard at it. Like, am I, am I a fool for believing that? <laughs> I feel like the reflexive thing is like, you know, he's a, he's a snake oil salesman. And then I was talking to a friend of mine and she was like, I just can't have a white man explain life to me. Like he just, like to her, he's just a mansplainer. You've just fucking begun and you're not going to fuck it up. Which brings up the uh, interesting question. Like who is the female? I guess Oprah. Is she the female Tony Robbins? Like Brene Brown. Is that her name? You just fucking begun and you're not going to fuck it up. I mean, like evolutionally speaking, it does make some sense to me that there would be people like this in the species. Get everybody fired up, help everybody raise their game, inspire higher levels of achievement. 
you've just fucking begun. Okay, enough of that. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta stop. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Brian McGreevy. He has a new novel out called The Lights. He is also a co-creator of the hit television series, The Sun, now on AMC. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Brian McGreevy. It's, it's funny. That fact seems interesting to uh, a lot of people, but to me, it's pretty mundane in the sense that, like, I think to a lot of people, what, what their parents were up to is mundane. Right. Um, and also, I would say that for where I grew up, my household was somewhat aberrational because um, I was... Uh, my formative years were spent in very profound Rust Belt, Pennsylvania, uh, what is now like deep in the heart of Trump country. But, you know... What town was this? Um, so it was in a region uh, called the Monongahela Valley. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's a cluster of towns uh, along the river south of Pittsburgh that used to be uh, where the majority of the steel of the United States infrastructure was produced when there was still uh, industry in that region, which now, well, it would be disingenuous to say now there's not, it's just now it's fracking. Um, at any rate, I would say that overall, the culture I grew up in was fairly disenfranchised white trash but my household was very educated very liberal what most people don't realize about uh the clergy um that are uh, members of the baby boomer generation are often recovering hippies because the way that you sublimate that kind of utopianism and idealism you know more or less after the 70s um is in the church and so your parents are hip were hippies oh yeah okay and the, but like, and then what's the what's the denomination uh so it's my mother and stepfather uh they are both presbyterian now uh they were disciples of christ uh for much of my upbringing and for you know the godless liberals who are listening to this podcast uh <laughs> both of those are relatively moderate to liberal denominations of Protestantism, because I find that when I say that I was raised, you know, uh, by ministers, that the first thing in people's minds is like the Westboro, you know, Baptist church. <laughs> well, I'm, I was raised Catholic, and I don't think there were too many 
recovering hippies who went into the priesthood. It doesn't seem to, to be the same. I would say that Protestantism, Protestantism and Catholicism have about as much in common with each other as each has with uh, Islam. Like, I would fundamentally consider them different religions. Yeah. Like, I barely even consider Catholicism monotheistic. Really? Um, if you look at it functionally, instead of, like, literally, you know, looking at the theology in, like, a completely legalistic way, I mean, you know, we're in Los Angeles, and if you look at uh, the shrines uh, to uh, Mary, I don't see how these are functionally different from any goddess in a polytheistic religion. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, and then there's the saints, and then there's the pope and uh, right there's this entire uh hierarchy of deities yeah and so you mentioned your mom was a minister your stepdad was a minister where was your dad uh my father uh was a uh, community college professor in the region which is actually great when it came to my personal path because i had uh what you know in this city is referred to as creative differences with public education. So I dropped out of high school in the ninth grade and just started going to community college. Right away in ninth grade. Ninth grade? Yeah. I didn't care for it very much. What, what um, was what was the issue? Um it was that, you know, this being like a small shitty valley town, there was a profound culture of anti-intellectualism, uh, um, curiosity was penalized, artistic self-expression was penalized. And I'm not necessarily talking about the other students because, you know, it wasn't like I was like exceptionally popular, but I wasn't exceptionally unpopular. Yeah, I was going to ask about you socially. If you're dropping out, was it social or was it mostly academic? It was that, you know, uh, the shittiest treatment I got was from the teachers not from the other students that if I was trying to express myself in a way that like, you know, for instance, like if you were going to St. Anne's that would put you on a track to an Ivy league school, um, put you in what a is St. Anne's you mean in it's, a... it's an, uh, an arts high school in New York that produces some very great artists. Like I'm not, I'm not saying like St. Anne's is a bad thing. I'm just giving it as a, uh, a, a, a polar extreme antithetical to what I grew up around that, oh, you right. know, um, that's where like Lena Dunham went to high school, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's that adults in that region who are often fairly bitter and economically disenfranchised are incredibly quickly to put people they don't understand in like, you know, the file in their brain of, oh, he thinks he's better than me. It's like, well, no, I'm just trying to be myself, which, you know, in much of the world outside of like major coastal city urban centers is a seditious act. Right. Like, so just like deep insecurity. Uh, precisely. And they're just projecting all of their insecurity onto you. And did you get into verbal like altercations with teachers? Oh man, I was, a, I was a little asshole. I mean, they, they had a lot of reasons to dislike me because I kind of I did think I was better than them. And I was also, I mean, just like kind of a, bored destructive maniac i mean like i'd light shit on fire um like i'd As steal stuff <laughs> like uh i'd like you know like like carve a lot of like lewd things into the walls and like it wasn't like i was a bad kid although i tended to hang out with them um like 
it wasn't like I had this posture of um, like I was being like I was blindly acting out. Like, no, I was acting out in a very targeted and efficient way, which was like, you know, I take books to class because I was bored um, and I would just read through class. And there were some teachers who understood that, like, okay, this was the ecosystem and they didn't fuck with me. Um, the ones who did, it was like, okay, well, I sort of, you know, wage this targeted campaign of like just, you know, being an asshole. Um, you know, the following year, because um, like the, 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 the time period between me dropping out and starting college was several weeks because I, I started the summer term that summer. I started as soon as I could. So you and, finished the school year. Well, sort of. I mean, I also just couldn't be bothered to go much of the time. So I think I have like a sum total of like 80 or 90 days of high school. Um, but I was dropping in every once in a while. What did the conversation with your parents look like? Well, so my dad was a lapsed Catholic himself who was profoundly anti-authoritarian. And I mean, like into his 60s he was like getting into like vocal altercations with the cops saying that like him and his sons <laughs> were going to kick the shit out of them which is like hey old man like leave me out of this <laughs> um so he was kind of like obviously quite tickled every time like i called the principal a fascist or whatever i was doing which uh, that that was pretty pretty uh it was a standard rhetorical uh trick for me to fall back on um for my mom, it was a more complicated conversation. I mean, I remember telling her when I was dropping out, well, when I decided to drop out, which was a few months uh, before the end of the school year. And we got into a fight about it, which I think was her just getting used to the idea. But then... That's a big thing for any parent to let their kid drop out of high school as a freshman. Well, right. And, you know, she quite justifiably... Uh, wanted to feel like I wasn't making a destructive decision when it came to my future. But then, you know, like, it wasn't like we had, like, the option of, like, a Montessori school or whatever. Um, and I think that, you know, like, I owe pretty much my entire cosmology that permits me to uh, um, occupy an unusual space in society to uh, my mother's unconditional support um and so she came around pretty quickly realizing that like oh no like this environment is toxic for my son and whatever the risk is that's uh, attendant to me uh you know forging this other path it's necessary to support it and she did it's riskier to leave you there leave you in school uh right yeah um not, not a lot of parents would make that calculation i would gander or uh, uh, yeah I, I i think that's i think that is very true i think my mother deserves a massive amount of credit for that and the whole uh host of other things when it comes to um supporting me making unconventional uh life choices yeah and so you can go i didn't even know you could go to community college as a freshman what well you, 13 years old 14 years old no um so I was on that dividing line as when I was very young of I'd either be uh, very young for first grade or old for kindergarten. Right. 
Um, so I had turned 16 at the end of what would have been my freshman year okay. in high school. Um, you can go to community college uh, with your GED, and that's all you need. Um, and you can get your GED um, when you're under 17 with permission from the principal of your high school. And, you know, she really uh, lorded it over me. The idea that, like, she was not going to give permission was like, yes, you are. Like, both of us know that it's not worth it to you um, to deal with the fucking rain of shit that's going to happen in your life if you don't. Uh, and, you know, she did give consent. And, you know, the second that I was being treated uh, more or less like an adult, because, by the way, I mean, like a whole separate tirade would be the way that we infantilize adolescents in this country, which, I mean, if I can create an analogy in this industry, like we infantilize actors in much the same way, whereas it's like people tend to hit the bar where the bar is set. So if you lower the bar and you infantilize people, they're probably going to act more like children. If you raise the bar and expect a greater degree of accountability uh, from people, you know, with certain exceptions, you can largely expect that people will hold themselves more personally accountable in that situation. And, you know, one of the reasons why you see all these, uh, you know, academically stellar high school students go to college and like flame out and binge drink uh, and have like a lot of difficulty, uh, you know, maintaining the same academic standard because... Wait, are you talking about me? <laughs> well, but you know, you know what I mean? That like they, they, they're not being babysat constantly anymore. And, you know, in like countries that are not as developed as the United States, the teenagers... Uh, um, they mature much more rapidly because they're not treated like children. Right. Or even in some of the uh, developed countries. I mean, like I have a, one of my best friends is uh, Swedish and, you know, he's had conversations with me that like other, that Sweden, for example, hates when American, young American tourists come to visit because like this like attitude of like, this very fratty, obnoxious, it's like, we're going to behave this way because, like, our parents aren't looking kind of thing is something he perceives as, like, unusually American, um, also Australian, but I don't really have any any personal data on that. But so, at any rate, like, back to the uh, the community college system, which I personally think is possibly the only legitimate meritocracy in America because... Anyone can go. It's very cheap. It's 100% what you make of it. And so, you know, I don't have my SATs and I don't have an, a high school diploma. Um, but if you have your equivalent of your freshman year in college credits from a community college, you can transfer to any four-year college in the country. And so for me, being in that environment as a 16-year-old, it was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, the show community actually does kind of an amazing job of capturing the spirit of that kind of place where it's like, you know, you have the guy who actually was like doing things in life, but like he fucked up and has to go back. It's like you have the single mother 
who's trying to get a degree you know for herself to make a better life for her kids you know you have like the high functioning academic students who flamed out in four-year school and like you know was taking too many pills and like blah 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 it's like I knew iterations of all of those people. Yeah, I used to teach. I used to teach at Santa Monica College, and like I was always amazed by the range of students. I had like a just like a seventy-four-year-old man in my creative writing class, right? And then, you know, uh, the nineteen-year-old flame out, like just like you're saying. Yeah, and you, it's hard to find, uh, and then people, students from all over the world, right? So it's like it's hard to find that cross section uh, in academia, period, but also just anywhere in the world. It's unique. So what, what was really funny, um, at the, um, MFA program in creative writing, which, uh, I ended up going to, which is, uh, the James Mishner center at UT Austin. And where, where did you go for undergrad? Um, ultimately university of Pittsburgh. Okay. And then went to, to Austin for your MFA. Right. And so that program had a pretty even split of people who, you know, had the right sort of like Eastern seaboard pedigree, you know, um, they went to a certain prep school, they went to a certain Ivy league school, and this was like the logical next step, uh, for them. Um, and then it had just as many other people who, uh, dropped out of high school, went to community college and forged their own path. I mean, like I was expecting to be more unique, uh, in that regard and was like somewhat pissed off. Not to be. <laughs> You're like, Hey, wait a minute. I'm yeah. the only guy that dropped out of high school here. Yeah. Um, but that's cool though. I mean that, cause I find that that's the case. Um, that's something that is unique to writing the arts, uh, film and television. You know, I feel like there's a lot, obviously it's very clubby and there are a lot of Ivy leaguers in these realms, but nobody really gives a shit. It's about what you can do. They profoundly do not give a shit. And so <clears throat> based on observation, I wound up uh, coining uh, a phrase, just like an interpersonal conversation, which is the Ivy ceiling, which is that the people that I came up with who were coming from more middle class backgrounds, some lower class, but, you know, with lower class, it's more complicated because like if you're coming from an environment where you're struggling paycheck to paycheck, it's sort of like running a race, uh, you know, um, um, with like weights tied to your ankles. Like there are certainly people who do it and the ones who do it are endlessly impressive, but there's something disingenuous about the whole, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality where it's like, well, you know, especially the arts tend to be populated by people who at least have enough leisure time to yeah. consume and create art. Right. Um, you know, so like hats off to the people like who have to work like double shifts at the seven 11, like to not get evicted from their apartment, but they're, it, it's a very charismatic mediagenic story when it's the case, but it's also sort of a rare story. Um, at any rate, the people that I knew that once sort of like, uh, the bumper bowling situation of academia was removed. The first people who were like getting agents, making sales, actually making something happen from themselves tended to come from lower middle to middle middle class backgrounds because they had a sense of urgency and just hustle. Whereas the people 
that I knew who were from more upper class, prestigious backgrounds. And this is solely in the arts, in every other field I'm aware of. This is not the case, but they tended to flounder more because, like you say, the market doesn't really give a fuck. Right. Right. It's a, I mean, it's all about the the end product. And I mean, it almost makes me wonder, having gone through two rounds of college education, uh, you know, for create, well, for film studies and then creative writing, uh, like, was it necessary? Would I have been better served just to like jump in and start doing it? Like it's, it's kind of useless. I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's helpful if it helps you meet people and it serves that function, but do you really need it? Would I have been better off to just dive in? I, th- this is something, you know, I'm, uh, consulted by people who are debating whether or not to pursue an academic program for writing. And like, I just don't think there's a one size fits all answer. I mean, like I certainly benefited from it hugely. I mean, uh, Hemlock Grove, uh, was my master's thesis, um, in, uh, graduate school and, you know, many of the writers that I'm in business with on the television side now are people I met in graduate school. That being said, as far as its general utility, I mean, there can be good things about it. It can also be destructive in the sense that uh, pretty much any time you have a situation where one is incentivized to please an external authority, I would say that's very damaging to a developing artist. Like I was such an instinctive prick from high school and like mistrusted <laughs> my teachers and mistrusted authority that pretty much any time a, profe- a professor suggested I was doing something wrong, as polite as I probably was to their face because I, I liked my graduate program, I was thinking, go fuck yourself. And, you know, they were probably right 75% of the time, something like that. Uh, But I needed to find out why they were right for myself. And then, you know, in the ways that they were wrong, if I had listened to them, it would have really handicapped my me developing my own voice. Yeah, it's like that's the trick, though, is knowing when they're right and when they're wrong. I think you can only know they're right when you figured out that they're right. Like, I don't think you can tell someone that they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you got to learn the hard way. And I think experientially. Yeah. Um, so you wrote Hemlock Grove as your thesis. It gets published. It gets made into a Netflix series. Mm-hmm. Was that always the intention that you were going to try to adapt? Did you always want to do both? Um, I definitely always wanted to do both. And that was one of the attractions of the program I went to in that it did not, uh, enforce specialization because i think specialization is this like hold over puritanical ethos that does not correspond to human beings as i know them um i always loved books i always loved film um you know it certainly was in my life plan uh to uh, do both how, how early how early did this dawn on you Oh, Christ. Like, I was was like, this when you were dropping out of high school? You're like, I'm going to go make, I'm going to be a director? No, I was like the little dickhead who was seven. who was like, this is what I'm going to do. Really? <laughs> yeah. No, like insufferable. Okay. So yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. Like just, n- n- there, there was never even a question. And were you performing, not to go back too far, because I know we're, we're sort of beyond that in terms of your chronology, but 
were you a high academic performer as a young person? I mean, so you seem like you were precocious, but sometimes people who are precocious don't do well in terms of their marks. Yeah, I was also way too lazy. Okay. You know, and I, like I, I, the world's laziest person to this day, unless I'm actively interested in something. And then it's all systems go. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, and so when you're working on Hemlock Grove, for example, you're in graduate school, this is your thesis. Yeah. Um, how are you working on that? And how, how do you generally work on a writing project when you're fully immersed? Um, well, that one, oh Christ, the first draft of that was almost more like automatic handwriting, which is uh, the only time in my uh, writing life I've ever experienced that. But like, you know, the first 300 page draft came out like in three months when I was 22. Wow. Um, by that point you've been in college for 11 years. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I, I had a healthy amount of education <laughs> at that point. Um, but then, you know, I really had, uh, no idea what I'd written. Um, and so sort of the next five years of revision, cause the book went through an insane number of revisions, like I, by the way, like the, the poll quote here is not that I wrote that book in three months. No, I wrote that book in five years. It's just the subsequent five years were almost like uh, an exegesis of my own material. Um, I also have no idea if I'm pronouncing that word correctly because it's one of those things I see in print all the time, and just you know, I could be making myself sound like. A when dull. you said that word, I automatically assume you're just a genius. <laughs> it's like that and simulacrum, which yeah. I think you know those yeah. two words. Um, so you finish that book, at least the first draft in three months, and then proceed to edit it for five years and then graduate with it in that span. So 20 at 22, when you wrote the first draft, you weren't in the UT program. At no, that I point. was. Oh, you uh, were. Yeah. I, I, I started that, you know, cause remember I, I started college when I was 16. Um, so I was 21. Um, when I went to that program. Wow. That's so, young to be it, in an MFA program. Um, uh, it was, yes, that's true. And then you, how, it's a three year program. Yes. Okay. I'm just trying to do the math. So it was, it was my second year when I started it. Uh -huh. Um, so wrote the first draft spring and summer of that year. Um, and then, you know, it was, so by the time it was, you know, I was doing my thesis defense, um, you know, it was two or three drafts in, um, and my, uh, my thesis advisor, who's a good guy, who is a major advocate of my own career. And I'm very indebted to him, uh, gave me the very well-meaning advice to throw it away and start working on a real book. Um, but at that point, like I had a conference call, um, my first call with the, uh, fine people who ended up being my first agents in film and TV, uh, immediate schedule immediately after that meeting. And so I already had a sense that like, you know, literally and proverbially schools out. Yeah. It's time to go be a professional at this. Yeah. And so how did the, how did the uh, TV deal happen? So, you know, this is hopping back to your original question on this subject. Uh, did I write that book with the intention um, of adapting it? The answer is I, I didn't write that book with the intention of anything except like taking this, you know, like that book came out of me like a fucking meteor. Um, it was so representative of what 
I was thinking about at the time because it was like just like just this amorphous allegorical Jungian compulsion towards uh, putting a mythological framework <clears throat> atop my own adolescence. Um, like, I mean, like I could not write that book now because uh, right. I was just not nearly close enough to the things that like I had cared about at the time, you know, in the same way, like, you know, the, the book I have coming out is largely about like issues in your twenties, which like, you know, I'm now in my thirties. So it's like, you know, I feel like, oh, it's reasonable for me to be trying to process. But in a few years, like I would just to feel too alien, uh, to it, to, you know, be able to summon the passion, the fucking write about it. Um, but so anyway, so over, over the next few years, I was simultaneously editing Hemlock Grove and uh, working as kind of like a hired gun mercenary screenwriter um, in the studio system. Uh, that was that was my my day job. Uh, How did you get that? Um. So my secondary thesis in the program was a screenplay I uh, wrote uh, with my longtime uh, screenwriting partner Lee Shipman, um, which we submitted to um lee was here for the holiday episode of this podcast oh funny yeah he was um <laughs> which i'm not sure he, i think he regrets it but he was here <laughs> sure so we we wrote this script together that we submitted uh to uh the nickel screenwriting contest uh which did not win but placed well enough that got us the attention of a, a manager out here and so i mean we were revising that script for this manager for the bulk of um of our final year in grad school and that was actually i learned probably 20 times more from that experience than i did you know with respect to my program than any class i took in that program um and then we got our agents through that and then that went out and it was the proverbial uh calling card script which you know my my brain is somewhat miscalibrated in this uh garage brad because i'm kind of accustomed to having to contextualize things when i'm in like brooklyn that with regards to the film industry but then when i'm in la i'm like oh well, people understand the, the, they understand the nomenclature but so for the listeners who do not um it's much more common and than not in the life of a professional screenwriter that uh, your first script that goes out is what's referred to as your calling card, which means like it gets you a bunch of attention. People want to meet you, but like you don't really make a dime off it. Um, so this was that for us. Um, it ended up on the blacklist that year. Uh, it was very well regarded, but not you know well regarded enough for anyone to make it. Um, but then, you know, it got us meetings, you know, meetings led to pitches. We sold a uh, pitch and then a week later, the 2007 writer's strike happened. And so, uh, like we both had, you know, these like contracts from Fox in our respective closets and Lee was working as a substitute teacher and I was working, uh, as a barista at a coffee shop in Austin called Sissies, which, because like, of course, like, you know, these deals take months and months to make. Yeah. So I'd had months to crow to all of my Austin friends about this deal. Um, and then I'd be like making their macchiatos and be like, oh, how's it going, hotshot? <laughs> 
which in ways was sort of the perfect introduction yeah. <laughs> to uh, this industry. Blah, blah, blah. Long story short. So when I sold the first book, I already had several years of film industry experience under my belt. And this was back in 2011. This was when the migration was having was happening in earnest uh, from film to TV, at least when it came to, you know, uh, stories that didn't fall into the four quadrants, which again, for the for the for the listener who's not like updating deadline three times a day, four quadrant means uh, young, old, male, female, like Marvel movies, like movies that like appeal to everybody, which is pretty much what movies to do is make at this point. Um, and so I decided it was most creatively interesting to, uh, pursue it as a TV series. And I decided that, uh, Netflix was the most creatively interesting. Um, what's ironic in fullness of time, uh, is that. It seemed then like I was making a very risky business decision. People didn't understand what Netflix was. They just announced that they were spinning off their DVD business with the whole like Quickster debacle. Like people thought Netflix was going to collapse. They thought like, wait, Netflix making shows? Like, is it a web series? Um, it seemed like a silly and naive decision on my part. Um, but you know, in retrospect, it was a fucking genius business decision and. Uh, to put things diplomatically, I am incredibly ambivalent about how the show wound up creatively. Yeah. Well, I mean, that happens, but it's just, it's so hard to get anything actually made like that in an, in and of itself. Oh, sure. Is a huge achievement. Again, and I want to ask you because, you know, this is, there's a pattern in your life where you've talked about it. Like you seem to have a low tolerance for bullshit. Uh, you didn't have it when you were a freshman in high school. You didn't have it in graduate school. And then you go into business as a screenwriter in an industry that's sort of famous sure. <laughs> for bullshit. Like, how do you, man, because all the meetings, I've done some of this stuff, like all the meetings, all the puffery, all the, you know, one minute things are going to happen, one minute they're not. You're talking to people who are giving you notes who might not have even read the script. Right. Know? Like, how do you, like, navigate all that without flipping your lid? Well, you know, how long have you been married? 10 years this uh, August. So you have no experience with Tinder dating? None. All right. We met analog. I would compare navigating this industry to Tinder dating because a, a general meeting, which is a meeting um, that is between yourself and um, a producer or executive uh, with whom you might find business, it's a weird inorganic construct and like nine out of 10 or like 99 out of a hundred are going to be kind of a demoralized, a demoralizing waste of time, much like Tinder dates. But there is the one in a hundred or like whatever the actual stat is where it's like, you can send out weirdness feelers. Cause it's not like I'm going into these meetings being like, you know, like consciously uh, like idiosyncratic or disruptive because I would not have a career if that was the case. I mean, like I'm also a minister's son, so it's like I can make myself more boring when I have to be. Right. <laughs> it's not a skill set that, like, you know, I that um, I'm in love with, but it's a skill set I have certainly cultivated. 
Um, but so, you know, like when you're talking about like, uh, what stuff you're into, like these days, like, you know, if I'm in a general meeting and if someone says like, all right, so like, what were your favorite movies of last year? Like if I say like, okay, like Wiener and the Wailing, if like that sparks something with them, then like, okay, then, uh, it's a slippery slope from there that the conversation can start getting weird. And uh, the second the conversation starts getting weird, you're probably both going to start bitching about how stupid people are in this industry, um, <laughs> whether they inherently are or they're wearing a mask of stupidity to make themselves uh, less threatening to a corporate hierarchy. Um, and so, you know, if you're willing to wade through the numbers, you'll eventually find people that it makes sense for you to be in business with. And then, you know, those people tend to stay in business for their entire career. Yeah. Okay. And you're willing to wade. Like you can, you have the will to, to wade. Well, I also, I mean, in my first two years in this industry, probably, I, I probably did 200 general meetings. I mean, yeah. you know, um, when and I was in my like early to mid twenties then. And so at that point I was still really swept away by the novelty of even being allowed on the studio lot, um, which was actively uh, in conjunction with sort of wondering how it, why it had taken this long. Um, Cause like, you know, when I see people taking these meetings, it's like, there's, two problems that makes a lot of like that that causes all that shipwrecks uh one is if you're obviously like a diva um the other is if you're not enough of a diva <laughs> that like you kind of have to be both for them to respect you or okay if you're too much of a diva then you're probably just sending off a lot of red flags and like life's too short and you know it also probably means you're kind of a douchebag um but if you're too like wide-eyed and don't have enough of a sense of entitlement it's like yeah no i'm here for a fucking reason you're welcome um it it, it, it does take this like weird alchemy of both yeah yeah because people then if, if you don't have a little bit of, of the latter then people aren't going to take you seriously yeah it, it, it's more like you know the people who claim not to be somehow impressed by the mythology and glamour associated with this industry. It's like, are you brain dead? I mean, there's something that's insanely appealing and charismatic about it. But if you're not, if you don't have a healthy skepticism at the same time of institutions and the individuals who constitute those institutions, you're, you're going to get in your own head about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you learn by doing, I mean, you know, the longer you're here, the longer you're taking those meetings, the longer you're making, uh, television and film. I mean, eventually it becomes n normal a I mean, job. Th that, that's the other thing is that, you know, like you're not a human being until you're 26. Like when you're 26, your brain has more or less crystallized into your adult structure. And like after 26, you're just aging. Um, <laughs> Just rotting. The but long, like, slow process of decay. Before you're 26, like, a part of you is still like, well, I could be an astronaut. You yeah. know? Like, who says I couldn't? Um, and so, just through kind of a fluke, I am such a creature of this industry because I had just turned 24 
when I was enculturated within it. And so, you know, when I see people now who are, because right now there's this influx of novelists and journalists who specifically are trying to penetrate TV. And like, I see them bumping against these insane Byzantine protocols that exist in this industry. I'm like, yeah, you know, I guess those are like absurd and dumb. But for me, I'm just so post-conscious of them that like half the time I I don't even realize it. I'm just like, oh, do, 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 do. this is how you play this game. Right, right. And so you get, uh, you get to Netflix at this time. No one even really knows what it is, uh, at least not in terms of making its own content. Right. That was considered a long shot play. And at that point, I mean, the first time that I met there, the originals division, um, was Ted and Cindy. And then the second time it was Ted, Cindy and Peter. And now the originals division is this building not far from here in Hollywood that like looks like a fucking star destroyer. Right. Yeah. I've seen it at night. I was walking around that part of town like like earlier this winter when it was one of those rainy like post rainy but the clouds were still there yeah and saw like the netflix sort of looming you yeah know? it's a it's a big it's a big facility yeah i mean like just it was, there was like this snowball effect of like every week there would be like new emails added to the chain i'm like who are these people yeah and like people ask me now uh you know they ask me for advice when they're pitching to Netflix or like working with Netflix or like, what's it like? I'm like, how would I know? I mean, like, you know, I was working with them in essentially the Neolithic era of that company. <laughs> right. They were still sending out discs. I guess right. they still do somewhat, but not really. Yeah. So uh, like, as far as like what it's like to work with them now, it's like, I don't know. And what do you, and when you talk about four quadrant, you know, you, you've done a nice job for people who don't like live and breathe this stuff of defining these things. Um, but you talked about four quadrant, which was what male, female, young, old. Yeah. Um, and the way that the movies, you know, the movie studios, when it comes to feature filmmaking tend to be specializing only in that. Right. Do you, br- and, and you've worked in TV yeah. and you're continuing to work in TV. Is that because you bristle against the narrowness of f- the just film studios? not how my brain works. I mean, cause like, you know, the best version of like a four quadrant movie is like Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it's like, there's no reason why it cannot be a transcendent piece of cinema. It's just usually dumb. Um, doesn't have to be usually is, um, there are people who are good at it. There are people who like, I'm very resistant to categorically dismissing any kind of creative output because like, to do anything well is really difficult. That being said, like my brain is just like too dark and weird. Like I'm horrible uh, at weddings, like at friends weddings. Cause I'm like, okay, when's this countdown starting? You know, <laughs> <laughs> that like, it's just like a part of my brain uh, is just like always looking for the fault lines, like wondering like what's subterranean. It's like, okay, but like, you know, if there was a sustained power out from an EMP or something, like how long before like we're fucking eating each other? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Oh man, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm kind of the same way. Like it's, it's, uh, maybe, a, maybe that's just like writerly temperament, like trying to find the subterranean. Um, I also think just like after, you know, the Sopranos and Mad Men and especially the wire, 
most novelists became infinitely more interested in TV than they did movies. Well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're a lot more analogous. You can, yeah. you can, there's a lot more room to roam Yeah, and, uh, you can do the kind of storytelling. It's the closest approximation in a visual medium to novelistic storytelling. Precisely. You know, so I get it. And it just seems like everybody in town, especially every novelist in town wants to do a, do a TV show. Cause there's mon- there's theoretically money in it, but the problem becomes when there's a million places to put TV shows right? and there's a million TV shows and a million, like who's going to watch all this stuff? How are you going to make a buck on it? Right. I mean, isn't that becoming a challenge? Isn't it becoming sort of like the music industry or, uh, the blogosphere, you know, or whatever, or publishing, there's a billion books, right? I mean, how do you cut through all that? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask. I mean, like, ideally try to create something interesting that people want to watch yeah but like it is funny that uh for a number of years you know i was working as a hollywood screenwriter and when i would uh be like interacting in new york publishing circles it was just sort of like being an exotic animal i mean people like knew what it was but they didn't have a context for it but i mean you mean in, when you were in new york as a screenwriter or when you were in, in la as a novelist um or both <laughs> In L.A., a lot of people don't even realize that I'm a novelist um, because, like, my professional identity here has been as a screenwriter for about 10 years now. Um, and, like, you know, when they find out, like, uh, I have a book uh, coming out next week, everyone should buy it. Um, <laughs> nice. They're like, wait, you write books? Like, what, what, what the fuck is that? Like, when did you start doing that? It's like, oh, you know, like when I was 19. <laughs> um, I was... Uh, living in New York in my twenties on and off just because I found something appealing about the intellectual culture there. And so there was a period, uh, you know, up until the last few years, um, where, like I say, being a screamer is like, Oh, that's like, that's, that's weird. That's a real job. Um, whereas now if I'm at like the national book awards party or something, it's like, every conversation i have is about tv um and you know people wanting to break into tv oh my god does it get exhausting uh no because it's hard for me to imagine something more mellifluous than hearing me talk about something i know a lot about (laughs) (laughs) oh man and so and so you do you have any desire to write a movie uh I just uh, shot a uh, short film um, starring uh, my, my my Swedish friend uh, uh, Bill, who was um, the, the star of my first TV show, and someone with whom I uh, share a very strong um, aesthetic worldview. Um, I'm definitely interested in filmmaking, um, like just writing a film and being shunted aside. No, cause I think a lot of directors are buffoons. Um, they're rewarded for understanding the technology and not the human spirit. Um, and a lot of them like, let me, uh, caveat this, that I'm not talking about the great directors. Cause like when you talk about like, 
when you talk about directors as a species, everyone goes like, oh, well, you're saying this about Stanley Cooper. It's like, well, no, I'm not. Like, yeah. you know, if, if, if there's someone you've heard of, that person is likely the exception <laughs> to what I'm saying. Right. I'm talking about, you know, these journeymen and like most most of them are men um people who are like coming out of usc or whatever and they're doing music videos and they're doing commercials and they can do like a lot of flashy bullshit but if you tell them to diagram a scene like they 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 couldn't if you said okay so what is this character's objectives what's this character's objectives um you know what is the logic behind what is the emotional logic behind this cut? Like they'd be completely useless when it comes to having that conversation. And I mean, I know many of my close actor friends, uh, their biggest frustration when it comes to directors is directors bullshitting their way out of fundamentally understanding the mechanics of story, as opposed to like, you know, some like jerk off film school bullshit that will look cool. What about you and technology then? Do you know the technology well enough to function? I mean, you made a short film. Did you have a cinematographer who sort of... Well, yeah, I've made two TV shows. So it's like, you if, do... if you hang out on set enough, you can, you can osmose the terminology, even if you don't understand it. But, you know, okay. I do not want to be the person who has directed a 10-minute short film and starts spouting off about like his philosophy as a director. <laughs> so let's say You're I am... You're an auteur. Right. <laughs> oh, auteur theory. That's complete nonsense. <laughs> um, like just the worst kind of uh, uh, hagiographic myth. Um, so when I'm talking about directing, this is not from my personal experience. It's from observation that like... You know, if you're like a gearhead who understands the technology, great. There's nothing wrong intrinsically with that. But the directors who are great, who really make things worthwhile, are not the ones who are inordinately interested in what goes up cosmetically on the screen. They're interested in the deep structure of being a human being. I mean, they have to be at least as sensitive and curious and thoughtful as a novelist. Um, the difference there is that as a novelist, your substance is going to be naked on the page. You know, it's there or it's not. You're saying something that is true and insightful um, and important to the human experience or you're not. Whereas like th th most directors are bullshitting their way through. I mean, you know, they can perform this alpha male swaggering act, um, and, you know, have incredibly profitable careers. Right. Right. I mean, it's like, uh, it's a big business. And if you just flip through however many hundreds of channels there are on a television dial on any given night and you see what's being made. Yeah. You know, it's like, who's making it? And people, somehow it's getting made. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, with regards to making films, like, yeah, I absolutely plan on making films, but not within the studio system because I don't want how much money something makes to be the determinant of its quality. That, to me, is utterly insane. But, I mean, it is a business, so it's got to make some money, right? Absolutely. And, you know, like, 
there are ways where it's like, you know, like I'm a kook and like kind of a maniac, but like there are other ways that like I'm a populist. Um, you know, there might be some like weird esoteric themes and undercurrents to my work, but like, you know, on the surface, like my first book was about like fucking sexy monsters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and like, and who doesn't love sexy monsters? Right. Well, exactly. Um, I see one every time I look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, and you know, like my n- new book is like fundamentally a love story. I mean, it's a very dysfunctional sideways love story, but that's what it is. It's called the lights. Yes. And it's rare bird books. We were talking about our, our friend Tyson. Yes. Before, Tyson Cornell. Before Tyson we came Cornell. On. Yeah. And then, yeah. Cause I want to talk about what's most recent in your career. You have, this novel, and then you have The Sun, which is the new AMC series, which you co-created? Yes. With Philip Meyer? Correct. Okay. So that's a big deal. I'm seeing, I mean, there's billboards. That's always a sign that there's some money behind it and people feel good about it. Uh, yeah, I think AMC spent an uncomfortable amount of uh, money on this show for their tastes. Yeah? But uh, yeah, because they're, I mean, you know, it's funny. They've done a great job of keeping in the same cultural conversation as like Netflix or HBO, but their shows have been incredibly economical by comparison, even The Walking Dead. I mean, like HBO does not give a shit. I mean, like HBO is also, you know, under like the Time Warner umbrella and I like they're make, like HBO alone is, you know, making something like seven billion dollars a year on subscriptions. Um, and so when people are like, oh my God, like they spend like $10 million an episode on Game of Thrones. It's like, that's, that's couch change to them. Like what, like why do they care? Yeah. But I mean the, the production value on Game of Thrones yeah. is incredible. Uh, whereas, um, you know, like AMC, they are not comfortable spending those vast sums of money, which makes total sense. Um, because they're still fundamentally an advertisement-driven network, and they do not have a major parent parent company, so it's like they, they they're completely accountable for you know how their shows do. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, were you writing the lights while you were working on the sun? How did these two things balance against one another? Well, I mean, you know, anytime you're getting something made. Uh, there's an immense amount of hurry up and wait. Like in a weird way, my experience of working as a screenwriter has been more conducive to sustaining my life as a novelist than for instance, being a full-time teacher would be. So if if you're a full-time teacher, you're always busy. Yeah. Whereas it's a lot of work. If you're, you know, a screenwriter who's in the business of like actually getting stuff into production, it's like, it's like a lot of work and then like six months of like, you're just like sort of like you're, you're out fishing. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're so like, you know, I'm always having people when they're emailing me or whatever, we're like, you know, I apologize. Cause I know you're so busy. I'm like, yeah, no, you're, just, <laughs> you're being very optimistic about how I'm spending my days. <laughs> um, which has been, vi- it, I'll put it this way, you know, it requires being able to compartmentalize. I mean, there, I certainly know writers who, um, they're working on the thing and that's the thing they're working on until it's done that like the necessity to like be working on a thing and then put it on back burner and work on another thing. And then, you know, like, you know, shift around the pots. Uh, my, my brain happens to work that way. Uh, not everyone's does. And so, 
you know, if uh, I say, like, you know, for instance, like Hemlock Grove took me five years to write, sure, that's true. Um, if I've been working on it exclusively full time, probably more like two and a half years. Right. You know, but it's just like, you know, there's going to be like periods of weeks or months where it's like, well, I, I got shit to do. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think too, it can be, you know, especially if you're working in different mediums, but if it's just the nature of the hurry up and wait, uh, process in film and television, it's good to have multiple things going. You have to, you have to have a career. Yeah. Cause people always want to know what's next. Yeah. And then you also have all this downtime. Uh, you got to make use of it. Yeah. What, what's crazy to me is when like, I talk to these writers who come out here and like, uh, uh, like, how do you stay productive in LA? Like blah, blah, blah. And then like, I like become, you know, like this, like tiger mother. I'm like, what are you doing with your time? Like, how can you not be productive out here? It's boring out here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Like you, you work, you, are you a workaholic? Do you do, what do you do for fun in LA? Um, stuff like most writers do. I drink. You drink constantly yeah. day drink. <laughs> um, you know, the, the problem is TV is a much more corporate job. And like most of my friends out here are, uh, actors and writers. So if they're on a TV show, they're busy during the day, which I consider quite selfish. Right. How dare they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, 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 podcasts occupy, uh, a lot of, a lot of my time, like on the drive here, I was listening to, uh, uh, what I thought was your, your fascinating interview with Jen Percy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you read that book? Uh, it was just recommended to me. Um, and it was kind of astonishing to me. I had not read it. So I, I just ordered it. Oh, okay. It's, it's right up your alley. Yeah. It's right up your alley. I mean, she, that, that book and she's ballsy. Oh, t- t- hearing like about the way she was researching that book. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. 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 I'm, mean, she's doing more stuff. I've read some journal like some, long form journalism pieces of her subsequent to that. And that's her beat. She likes to be out in dangerous parts of the world and wandering around. Yeah. I don't even like crossing Avenue D to the East River <laughs> promenade. <laughs> you can live it in your work. Um, so what was it like to be on a major, like, you know, cause I feel like, um, the sun is, that's a major show and, uh, it's getting, it's making a lot of noise. Like what's it like to go on set and Pierce Brosnan is there and you know, like, I'm sure people listening are curious, you know, like what, what is the day to day of making a show like that? How long did it take to, well, so unfortunately, you know, for your listeners, I find set to be about as interesting as like the like reception area of a dentist's. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's so slow and so technical and on a production this large it's also it's a circus i mean there's so many people who have to be there and as the writer you're kind of not one of them so it's like oh i guess we go to craft services yeah right <laughs> just have some like celery sticks and you know right. sweaty cheese cubes or whatever like hope someone cools in video village <laughs> You know, like, uh, at that, at that point, like, you know, like talk about like, you know, the election. So who is that? But I mean, like the right, they always say that the writer in television has more authority than, uh, he or she would in feature film. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, but when you go into production and you're the writer, co-creator of the show, like you're obviously there and you're welcome there and they want some of your input, but, but politically you're still not allowed to direct. Like it's big faux pas to interrupt the director while they're directing, um, and also, you know, with regards to this show, you know, 
my role on this one was in 2013. The book The Sun was about to come out. The series Hemlock Grove was about to come out. Uh, they asked me to come back for the second season, and I did not consider that to be the most constructive use of my energy at the time. And so, you know, all these crazy people were trying to buy uh, the rights to the sun. I mean, like uh, Pete Berg wanted it. Oprah Winfrey wanted it. Ridley Scott wanted it. And like, this is not a complete list. Uh, both Philip and I were living in Alphabet City at the time. Um, and in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we're just sort of like just kind of dicking around, like drinking too much, carousing, um, you know, enjoying our freedom. Um, and I said to him, I was like, you know, they're going to back up dump trucks full of money to your house to give away the rights to this thing, uh, which like if you want the money, obviously, you know, that makes total sense. But you also don't need the money right now and they're not going to let you be an active agent in this process. Like, you know, they're definitely going to be buying you off. And also it's like, they're going to be making big promises about what this is going to be. I mean, like Ari Emanuel actually called Philip while I was sitting on Philip's couch, drinking whiskey saying, it's like, don't do this with your little friend. Like, you know, <laughs> They might. He did. You were sitting right there. Yeah. Which I mean, like, like fair enough. You know, he was trying to get it for his clients. I have no hard feelings. Right. Right. Uh, like he was, he was doing his job. I can't hold that against him. Right. Um. Like you know, they're saying that like they're definitely going to make this like you know three hour, hundred and fifty million dollar hard R western. But it's like, well, you know, they're actually probably not. And you know, if as, they, as a feature film, yeah. Uh huh. Um. Some people want it for features. Some people want it for TV. I'm like, but you know, like even if they do, it's like. They're, you know, going to bring on, like, uh, Scott Frank or someone. They're going to bring on, like, a screenwriter that they know and trust because he's in that, like, cabal of screenwriters that they know and trust. Um, and, like, you might have, like, a ceremonial consulting position on it. Uh, maybe not. Um, I was like, or, you know, like, you can be the motherfucking PIMP. Um, like, you can be the one who's in charge. Uh, and he decided that he would experiment with that because he didn't need the money. Um, and you know, that was four years ago. Uh, we now have a show. Wow. So what's the, so what's the alternate route? You know, if you don't take Oprah Winfrey or Ridley Scott's money or that offer, then what do you do? You go to your agent and you say, I want to do this. You sell me as the creator. Or, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what's that, is, the, that is what we did. That's it. Yeah, that's precisely what we did. So instead of them just like buying the rights outright and just owning the property. We've, like, you know, for my first show, my first book, I had a known element attached to uh, spice up the sale and, you know, would not have a show otherwise. Um, I can you had, say what the known element was? People can use Google. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I was very ambivalent about that working process. And so when I was presenting this to Philip, it was like, okay, well, I had no experience. It was completely unproven at that time. 
uh, now I'm exponentially more knowledgeable about uh, the infrastructure and politics of TV. And so, you know, uh, we're not going to let one of these 800 pound gorillas on, even though several of them wanted to be. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's going to be us. Well, like it, we're, we're, we're the thing. Well, and it underscores something that I think a lot of people listening should be aware of, uh, especially if they're working on a novel or they're publishing novels or fiction of some kind is that when you are the person who has created the intellectual property, that gives you some leverage. It gives you all the leverage. And this is what I keep on trying to tell these writers because like they get swept up that like, oh, such and such person's production company is interested in my book or like HBO is interested in my book. It's like, yeah, of course they are. They need shit. <laughs> like you have all the leverage when you own the IP. And, and it's up to you to leverage it. Right. Now, the problem is that Book to film agents tend to be somewhere between useless as tits on a bore and actively <laughs> colluding against the interest of their authors. And so why do you say that? Um, because who are they incentivized to please? Like someone who has a book every three or five years or the, you know, producers and buyers that they're, you know, dealing with every day. Right. That, um, you know, I'm completely ruthless and unsentimental when it comes to looking at business as business. Like I'll talk to writers out here. It's like, Oh, like I don't want to leave my agent for this reason. Like blah, blah, blah. It's like your agent's your fucking employee. Like if you stop making the money, they would stop returning your calls. If you are unsatisfied with their job performance, I don't give a shit if they picked you out of school. Like you're, you're paying them. Right. <laughs> like, like, you are giving them more money than you are giving your parents. You're giving them more money than you're giving charity. It's like, are they doing the job or not doing the job? It is that simple a decision. Uh, when you're a crazy person like me, when you're a normal human being with empathy and feelings, like shit gets cloudier. Yeah. Well, it does. It does. I mean, because like, I think too that writers, creative people, I don't know a single author. It's a little bit different in film and television, I find, but I don't know a single author that I've ever spoken with who, when the subject of their agent comes up, doesn't say, I love my agent. Right. Because they're your advocate. Somebody likes you. you know? It's not just that. It's that like being able to work professionally as an artist is a position of insane privilege. And if you lose your gratitude for that, there's something profoundly spiritually sad about that state. What happens with a number of artistic people who tend to be more sensitive by nature and frankly, more sentimental uh, by nature and manipulatable, that the gratitude that they should feel towards the universe, they feel towards individuals who are profiting from them. That's deep, dude. Yeah. That's, there's some truth in that. Right. Because, you know, like people are, you spend all this time alone in a room writing this thing and then you hand it to somebody, you're in a vulnerable state. Like, if it's your last day in jail, the person who lets you out of jail is just doing their job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, sure, you should feel an immense amount of gratitude that, like, you're, you know, breathing free air. But, you know, to this person, it's like, if this person was not getting paid to do this, this person wouldn't do this. Right. Yeah. The person who lets you out of jail, but to you, they're like a holy figure. <laughs> yes. And also, you know, like many artists 
are childlike in positive ways, but they're also childlike in ways that can be used against them. And like, you know, every creative person to a certain extent, like wants daddy's approval. You know what I mean? Are you that way? Everyone is like yeah. people like, you know, like, uh, when my agent says, great job, I'm like, oh, you think so? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, no honest person is impervious to it. And in a in an ideal situation, you have aligned agendas that your reps want what's best for you, and they are doing their best in a good faith way to achieve that. And that's certainly not impossible. Like, look, I like all my reps. I like my lawyers. I socialize with my lawyers. So I'm not saying it's like, these are not human beings. Like, no, they are human beings. I'm specifically talking about the phenomenon when these people are benefiting themselves and their own agenda at the expense of the client, which happens time and time again. And they use this false and specious sense of loyalty their clients have to get away with it. Hmm. Well, there you go. Um, this has been enlightening and I'm really happy to have you on because you're doing both um, yeah. at the same time. I congratulate you on all your success, um, especially for the lights, since this is a explicitly literary podcast, uh, <laughs> yeah, but we've also done a great job talking about books. Yeah. But also, uh, but also the sun, which is uh, a great achievement and also has a, obviously a literary component. So, um, many congratulations and I wish you all the best going forward. Well, thank you very much. All right, guys, that is Brian McGreevy. His new novel is called the lights. It's available now from rare bird books. Check out the sun on AMC as well. Also check out Hemlock Grove. That's his first novel. That was made into a Netflix series. Brian McGreevy. You can find him online at brianmcgreevy.net. You can also find him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Diego McGreevy. Am I missing something? Oh, Diego McGreevy. <laughs> uh, you, you can find him on Twitter. you enjoy this program if you consume it on a regular basis and you want to become a donor you want to support the show you can do that over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod you can also uh support the show via paypal there's a link in the sidebar on the official website other ppl.com so tony robbins I should try to get him on this show. Would he do this show? He would never do this show. Tony, if you're listening, I'm not fucking around. <laughs> but I, you know, here's the thing. Assuming he is a genuine, sincere person, which I believe him to be, that's an admirable life. Like, it's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But like, what the fuck, what the fuck am I doing in my life? This guy's helping people. It's, I mean, I think it's in, inarguable that lots of people are uh, benefiting. They're also paying him a lot of money. I don't know. Not that you shouldn't be able to make a living helping people. <sighs> Imagine me firewalking to this music. Imagine me achieving my dreams.
I'm having a breakthrough. Summiting Everest. Write a 700-page novel in a month, and it's a masterpiece. I'm going to take an ice bath. I want to achieve complete mastery. You've just fucking begun and you're not gonna fuck it up.